Well, Debbie already guessed it. We're in Luke chapter 3. She knew right where to go. We're going to go between Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3. But Luke's where I'm going to be working out of. It's impossible to cover everything about John and these times together. But I'm going to put the candy in your mouth and then pull it out. And then you're going to have to go get it to get the rest of it. <laughs> You'll have to go study and finish all of these things we're finding about John. Luke chapter 3. The word of the Lord says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Eturia, and of the region of Trachonides, and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene, and Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit, is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. And when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. We'll stop there. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the word of God. And we thank you for this passage that we have before us this morning. We do pray that you will help us as we look into the life of John and his ministry and we see how you worked through him and what message you sent. We pray that you will touch our own lives. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our families. We pray for our children. We pray for all the people around us in this community who need to hear the gospel because we know that you have appointed us to be your messengers. And so we pray that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that as we grow, we will also communicate the message of God to those around us. Help us then and prepare us to be your messengers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the public ministry of John, I don't know, I've got to get rid of this chair. I don't think I can preach about John's public ministry sitting down. <laughs> Although they did that in the synagogue, you know, they stood to read the scriptures and they sat to teach. 
but I'm not in a synagogue today. (laughs) In Luke chapter 3, we get John out of the desert. That's where we left him last night. He just spent the night in the desert with us. But uh, when he went into the desert, he was there a long time. We can say from the when he left his childhood, when he wasn't a child anymore, when he began to be a young man in the age where young men in those days began to work. We don't know the exact age or time. We'll have to ask when we get to heaven, I suppose. But at some point there, he moved out into the desert. Some people think his parents died. And it's a conjecture, of course. But there's a lot of reason to think it could be true. And so John, alone now, moved out into the desert. And he was there until, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, he was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. To the day when he, when God took him out of there and put him in front of the nation of Israel. And how do we know when that was? And how did he know when to move? How did he know when he waited long enough? Would you just wait? You don't say how long. You just wait until God says now. And I don't think John, although he might have thought it, but I don't think John every day said, can I leave now, Lord? Can I leave now, Lord? Is that enough, Lord? Although when we're in a trial or when we're in a difficult situation, we do that, don't we? Is that enough, Lord? Okay, I've been still for five minutes. Okay, I've waited 24 hours. Is that enough? (laughs) And sometimes we have to wait years. And you know this, to make good wine, it takes time. It has to sit. It's not good wine if it's made in a hurry. And God, when he makes his messengers, and when he prepares people to serve him, he takes time to do it. And so, one day, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, one day when all of these men were governing and leading and ruling, chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, when all these men that were known in those days, seven of the richest and the most powerful men in in that part of the world in that day and time. When all of those were there, and you have the time given to you here, this is the date on the calendar, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So if you want to know when John was born and when Jesus was born, you go back from there and you figure it out. That's the date you're given on the calendar. But when all these men were ruling, the word of God came. That was the time. That was the year. And finally, silence is broken. Silence that had reigned since the days of Malachi the prophet. 400 years God had not spoken. And now he speaks. And he speaks to John. And he speaks in the wilderness. He didn't speak to Pontius Pilate. And he didn't speak to Tiberius Caesar. And he didn't speak to Herod or to Philip. To Lysanias. To Annas or to Caiaphas. He didn't speak to the emperor of the world. He didn't speak to the kings and the rulers of the Roman provinces. And he didn't speak to the high priests in the temple of Jerusalem. God had nothing to say to the city of Rome. And God had nothing to say to the city of Jerusalem. He spoke to John in the wilderness. And this is what I like. Because we call this God's bypass operation. This is God's bypass operation. He bypassed seven of the most powerful and influential men of the world of that day. He said nothing to any of them. You think about that. How do we want to raise our children? And in what condition do we want to find ourselves? Are we looking for a palace? Are we looking for an empire? Are we looking for a a place of power? An influence of riches, of comfort? Are we looking for a place of, of religious control like Annas and Caiaphas? How about the quiet place? How about the desert? And God had a man there that he'd brought into the world 30 years ago. A man whose parents probably were not living any longer. And there he was in the desert waiting. And he didn't know when God was going to speak to him. And the people probably thought he was crazy. He was a priest's son. He could have been in Jerusalem. The priests, you know, were divided into 24 courses back in the days of David. Because there were so many of them. 
that they couldn't all serve in the temple at the same time. And so in the days of King David, they divided them into 24 courses or classes or groups. And they had turns. They would take like two weeks at the time and they would go into Jerusalem and serve in the temple and do their service. And then they would come out and the next group would go in. And so this is the way they did things. And so at some time, it would have come time when he was about 25 years of age to begin serving in the temple. The, the younger men had certain services that they did. And then from 30 to 50, they had other services. That was the main time of their ministry. And, and so John would have been there. But he wasn't there. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't taking part. When his course, when that group of Abias that his father was of went into the temple to serve, John wasn't there. He was in the wilderness. And he was waiting. And why do I have to wait? Well, you remember what your father told you. You remember what your father said the angel said to him. And it's not the message of the angel. Because the angel was the messenger of God. You remember what God told the angel to tell your father and he told you. So, cutting out all the middle men and middle angels... You say, you remember what God told you. You will be the servant of the Most High. So you just wait. God is doing something. He's preparing something and you just wait. And this is when it happened. The 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. God spoke to John. God broke the silence. And this is the cause of the ministry of John. When it says in verse 2, the word of God came to John. That's the cause. And everything else that happens after that is the effect. Everything that John had to say, all of his public ministry, his preaching, his dealing with the people, his baptizing, his making disciples, everything that John had to do began that moment when the word of God came to John. And that is so necessary. Without a word from God, we can't be his messengers, can we? If we don't know what God has said, if we don't have a message from God, we don't have anything to say. And so, poor John, lowly John, unknown John, strange John, because you come over to Matthew and come with me now to Matthew chapter 3, and you see what the rest of the description of John is. Matthew chapter 3. Verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Strange John. Well, they didn't have any shops and stores out in the desert. So his clothes were made of what they could be made of. It was the roughest material. And they didn't have any place to, there were no 7-Eleven or Nation's Burger or anything else where he could buy anything to eat. So he ate what he could find in the desert. God maintained the prophet Elijah with the crows. Remember that? The ravens bringing the, the food to him. They were unclean animals. But the people of the nation of Israel at that time weren't supporting the prophet. They were under in the northern kingdom. They were under the influence of Ahab and Jezebel and all of the Baals. And they had no interest in the prophets of God. So God sometimes uses what we call unorthodox methods. He used the unclean animals to feed and sustain his prophet. And this is certainly unorthodox in appearance, isn't it? But God didn't want a man who was bought and paid for by the high priest, by the ruling hierarchy in Jerusalem. He didn't want a man who was controlled by them. He wanted a man who was going to say just what God said and who was going to feel no sense of loyalty to anyone but God. Because that category of man and that class of man was the person who could be the forerunner of the Messiah, who could present Messiah to the nation. Because the nation, as we saw on Sunday, was not in a condition to receive their Messiah. They wanted the Messiah. They longed for him. 
But they weren't thinking. As the prophet Malachi said, And the Lord whom you seek shall come suddenly to his temple. But he said, And who can stand before him? You want him to come, but you don't realize what you're asking for. We saw it in chapter 1, didn't we? The condition of the nation. That they weren't ready. They weren't saved. They weren't, a, they weren't a nation of people who were believing and following the Lord. And yet the Lord is coming. And so he sends his messenger before him to prepare the people. And the first words in Matthew chapter 3, we saw it. The first words that came out of John's mouth when the 400 years of silence were broken were, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> is that what he said? All right, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, let's clear something up because I don't want anybody to go away with any doubts. Does God love us and have a wonderful plan for our lives? Am I saying that that's wrong? No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand me. But that's not where God begins. God doesn't begin by putting sugar coating on it to make it look nice for people. He's not into marketing. He's not into consumer appeal and, and felt and perceived need surveys and all these kind of things. What God is doing is presenting to man, first of all, his great need. That's where he begins. In the first words that John has to say when he opens his mouth, when he comes out of the desert, he breaks his silence. And the 400 years of prophetic silence is repent. Who heard him? Well, he walked up and down the area along the Jordan River, those little Little communities there and people, passers-by and things like that. And he just began to preach. And word got around. There's a man, a strange man out in the desert, out by the Jordan River. And he's preaching to anybody who'll stop and listen to him. And people begin to go out and to see who it was. It was John. The word of God, it says in Luke 3, 2. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, in verse 3. And he came into all the country about the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The word of God came to John. John came preaching as a result. And in verse 7, he said to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. God's word came to John. John came preaching to the people. And the people came to listen to John. All of this began because God's word first came to John. There's the cause and the effect of everything that's happening here in this chapter. God could have spoken through the Roman emperor. You say, wouldn't that have been more logical? The emperor, his work would go out to all the Roman Empire. You're going to send a little man who looks like he's uh, spent too much time, his head's been baked in the desert sun. You're going to send him out there to preach by the Jordan River. Wouldn't it be better uh, to use whatever mass media they had in those days? Wouldn't it be better to reach the multitudes all at once? Well, that's the way we think. But that's not the way God thinks. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And his ways are higher than our ways. And that's one of the things we have to learn what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 40 and in other places in the scriptures we read it. Who hath been his counselor? Who are we to advise God and to tell him the best way for him to do things? Our job is to take advice from God, not to give advice to him. And he chose John. You remember last year, Memorial Day, we talked about that verse in Jeremiah. It says, let not the mighty man glory in his might, the wise man in his wisdom, the rich man in his riches. But he that glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. Wisdom and riches and might. And God despised all of that in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 3. He despised it all. He bypassed it all. And he went to John. In the desert. So this is God's bypass operation. And this ought to teach us something. That when we're looking for the wisdom of God. We don't look in the places that people in the world look for wisdom. Because that's not who God is using. And that's not where God is speaking. And the world has plenty to say. And it knows how to market its message. But there is a voice in the desert. There is a place 
away from all the hustle and bustle of the world where a person can listen and hear God's word. And that's what he had taught John. Be still and know that I am God. And he waited until God spoke. And then he came. And that was the wonderful thing about John. And that's the wonderful thing about all of the prophets. That they were men who knew what God had said. When they spoke, there was no uh, doubt. They were absolutely sure of what God had said. The prophets began their messages this way. Not like on the Tonight Show and these other things where they begin with a few jokes to loosen up the crowd. The prophets begin their messages this way. Thus saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord. They never began their messages with jokes and funny stories. You know, we have a sense of humor. But an excess of humor and the abuse of humor in the Lord's work causes a leakage of spiritual power. It causes spiritual impotence. It's imitating the world. And it might make people feel good, but it doesn't make God feel good. His messengers never began that way. They were people who were absolutely convinced that God had said something to them. And sometimes in the Old Testament, they called it uh, the, the burden of the prophet Amos. The burden. And why? Because he felt it was a burden. It was something he had to discharge. He had to... Get it off of him. And the only way he could do that and relieve that pressure and that burden was to give the message to the people that God had given to him. And he was concerned about the things that God had revealed to him. And he had to go and speak to them. That was the only way he could get any relief. Jeremiah one time was discouraged in his ministry and he said, and I said, I will no more speak in his name. Because the people were mistreating him. The people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament have often done that. When a prophet has come, when a man has come and spoken in the name of God and said, this is what's wrong and this is what needs to be fixed, people say, oh, he's negative and, and he's beating up on us and he's this and he's that. And what are they saying? The problem is not us and, and that we're doing anything that God doesn't like. The problem is the messenger. So we shoot the messenger and then we get rid of the problem. And Jeremiah was tired of it. And Jeremiah took a lot of abuse. Tradition says Isaiah was sawn, saw, uh, sawed in half by King Manasseh. And on we could go. But Jeremiah reached the point where he said, I'll speak no more in his name. That's it, I quit. But he said, his word was in me like a burning fire. And he said, I couldn't be quiet. <laughs> You see, that's the burden of a person who knows what God has said. I know that this thing that has been said, God said it. If a man said it, I could say, well, that's his opinion. But if God said it, it's truth. And it doesn't matter how many people agree or disagree with it. The truth doesn't need the agreement or the disagreement of people to establish itself. It's true because God said it. And so... The prophets couldn't be quiet. They had a burden. They had a message. They had a burning fire. The only way they could quench it was to give the message. The only way they could get any relief was to do what God had called them to do. And John knew that for this reason he had been brought into the world. You are a miracle child. You are a child of prophecy. You are a child of a, who is an answer to prayer. And you are a child that God has a plan for your life. And you go and wait and do not move until God speaks to you. And he will. And God spoke to him. And John came preaching. John didn't come telling jokes. He didn't come making suggestions. He came preaching. And what does that word preach mean? Well, you know, today, a lot of times people say, oh, I just want to share this with you. And I know what we mean by it. But I don't like the word share. Now, if you slip up and say it, don't feel like you have to apologize to me because I understand what you mean. But I don't like the word share. Yeah, I don't like it. Because share is what you do with your sandwich or your dessert or something. You know, you have a little bit and they have a little bit. and Share is like uh, there's no authority in it. 
There's, there's nothing there of power. There's nothing there of proclamation of a truth that needs to be heard. We're just sharing it. We're just, you have half and I'll have half. Now, I know that's not what we mean sometimes, but you see, the, the prophet didn't say, let me just share this with you. The prophet said, this is what God said. He said he came preaching, the word is caruso, and you can live a normal life without knowing the Greek and the Hebrew and all of that. But the word means to proclaim. It's like a herald. Back in the old days when the king would make a proclamation and the heralds would go out. Not the heralds, the heralds. They would go out on their horses or they would walk into the town square and they would pull out the proclamation of the king. They would blow the trumpet or ring a bell. And what would they say? Hear ye, hear ye. And they begin to proclaim to the people. They read it to them. Sometimes they're on horseback. Sometimes they're standing on a tower or, or at the seat of the city government or wherever it might have been. And they proclaim to the people in a loud voice what the king had decided, what had been decreed, what the news was, what the announcement was. Someone who knew the message, giving the message to people who didn't know it, making it known, making it public. That's what it means to preach. That's what preaching is. And preaching has fallen in evil times. A lot of people today don't want to preach. They want to share. And they want to tease and have fun and be liked by people. They don't have the burden of someone who the king has said something. And my job, and the only job I have is to go out and say, hear ye, hear ye. This is what the king has said. A herald, a preacher, a proclaimer of a divine message. And you don't have to yell at people to do it. You can preach the gospel sitting there beside someone, one to one. But preaching, proclaiming the gospel is this. You're giving them a message in the name of the king that they don't have. You're telling them something that they need to know. And we need more gospel preachers. Well, this is what John was. The word of the Lord came to John. And when the word of the Lord comes, he can't be quiet. And so he speaks to the people. Now I want you to look with me in chapter 3 at the message that John gave to the people. The gospel according to John the Baptist. Three points. First of all, repentance. Second, redemption. And third, retribution. This is the gospel according to John the Baptist. This is the message that he preached. The people came to him. And in verse 7 it says, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him. He said, Well, I'm glad you're here and I hope you're all happy campers. Is that what he said? You generation of vipers. And when you go back and read in Matthew, you understand that he was directing himself particularly, let's look at it and make sure we get it straight, to certain people who were in that multitude who came out. The snakes in the grass. The people who were hiding in the middle of the multitude. They were, in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism... The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the ones who were the leaders in Jerusalem. And the priests, the high priests, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, those, that, those families, or that family, because it was an extended family, that family belonged to the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in well, a lot of the supernatural. They were the religious liberals. We won't go into all of that right now. But the Pharisees were the other extreme. They took everything, literally they would be called today the fundamentalists. And some of them were people who were really serious about trying to follow the Lord and obey his word. But a lot of them were people who had interpreted things and added laws and rules to what God had said. And they, were, they had completely lost contact with the word of God. They couldn't distinguish between that and their own traditions. And so they taught everything as, with authority. You have to do this because that's our tradition, not because God said it. And they had it measured very carefully. How far you could walk on the Sabbath without it being a trip. Because you weren't allowed to make a trip or do any work. So how far you could walk. 
Everything was measured and decreed. Everything was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Calculated. What you could do and what you couldn't do. But these people came out to be baptized. In the middle of this multitude of people, you got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so John, right away, he failed uh, public speaking. He failed his public relations course. Because he didn't start off by trying to keep on good terms with his audience. He looked out there and he said, you snakes in the grass. You vipers, who told you to flee from the rest? Get out of here. That's what he's saying. So you go bring forth fruits befitting repentance. What was he saying to them? I'm not, because they came to his baptism. They were in line. They wanted to be baptized. And he said, uh-uh. I'm not baptizing you. You show me fruits of repentance. You go learn what it means to repent. Because this is the baptism of repentance. So doesn't anybody remember what the first word that came out of my mouth was? Repent, he said. So what makes you think you're going to come in here and get in line and sneak in here and get baptized with these people who have repented when you don't think you have anything to repent of? You just want to join the crowd. You just want to be in there. Or you just sneaking in here to find out what I said. You're just infiltrating. What is this? And he turned them away. Bring forth fruits befitting repentance. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because wrath is coming. And that's what John had to say. And we're going to get to that. And we get to the word of retribution. But he told them right away. He sent them right back to the first point of the gospel according to John the Baptist. And the first point is repent. That's where he began with the people. God never sent. Get this straight now. God never sent a prophet into the world to tell people, just to tell people that everything was okay. And the prophet appeared before the people and he said, No, I just, like we say in Spanish, nada pues, solamente era para saludarle. No, I just came to see how you're doing. I didn't really have anything to say, just... How's it going? And God loves you and hang in there. And The prophets didn't come for that. The prophets came when there was something that needed to be corrected. The prophets came because God was disturbed. God was burdened. God was anguished about what was happening. God was concerned about his people. And they were going the wrong way. And the prophet came and went... This way, the prophet came and drew the line again very clearly between good and evil. The people in time had erased it. And the prophets never made up their own rules. They just came and put that line back where God had put it. And they let the people get on one side or the other. See, people make their decision. But when you preach God's word the way he said it, you draw the line. This is truth. This is what God has had to say. Okay, now, everybody's going to make up their own mind what they're going to do. Everybody's going to get on one side or the other. We don't force people to get on one side or the other. We just draw the line and say, you can't stand on the line. There's not any middle ground. Get on one side or the other. And until you get on God's side, my friend, you're on the other side. Because that's all there is. There's no middle ground. And the prophets took that away from the people. They always have. They take away the middle ground. There's no place you can stand between two. What did Elijah say on the mountain that day when he built up the altar of the Lord and he stood there before the people? What did he say? How long will you halt between two opinions? If Jehovah be God, serve him. And if Baal be God, serve him. He made them decide that day. Get off the line and get on one side or the other. That's what you got to do. That's prophetic ministry. That's the way the prophets and the messengers of God have always spoken. It might have been through that uh, display on Mount Carmel that day. Or it might have been through the preaching of John the Baptist. Or it could have been through the ministry of the prophets in the city of Jerusalem. Or in the streets of Samaria or wherever it was. But the gist of their message is always this. This is what God has said. And now you've got to decide which side of the line you're going to get on. You're either going to do what God said or you're not. But you're not going to stand in the middle. Because there isn't any middle ground. And until you do what God has said and agree with what God has said, you're on the disobedient side. And that's why the prophets use the word repent. The first word that came out of his mouth. 
And in the Old Testament we see it. Let's go back to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 6. John is in good company. Jeremiah 6. Verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly or superficially, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall, and at the time that I visit them they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the way and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest unto your souls. But they said, They said no. They didn't say, we'll pray about it. And even if you say you'll pray about it, while you're praying about it, your answer is still no to God. You say no, but I'll pray about it being yes. But your answer is no if you say that. Also I set watchmen over you saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. We don't want to listen. We're not listening to that. And Jeremiah is calling them. He's taking them to task. He's calling their attention to the fact that they were a disobedient nation. They of all people in the world, only to Israel sent God his prophets. None of the nations had prophets. Nowhere else in the world did God reveal himself and speak and give his word to men who spoke to the people, only to Israel. And instead of appreciating this great privilege and blessing that God had given them, they said, take a hike. We don't want to listen. We don't want to follow this. And when to the prophet Isaiah, we don't have time to go into all of this, they said unto him, don't prophesy hard things to us. And to Jeremiah and other places, they said, don't speak any longer to us in the name of the Lord. And to the prophet, to another prophet, Micaiah, they said, uh, the word of all the prophets of Ahab, he had 400 prophets that told him he could go to war with the Assyrians. And he said, now, the word of all the other prophets to Ahab was success. And he said, let your word, <laughs> this is where he made a mistake. He said, let your word be like unto one of the, unto their word, to the word of one of them. <laughs> and he said, the prophet said, as God lives, I will only say what the Lord has said. We have a lot of people today who copy in each other's messages in the world around us. They say what this one said, and they agree with this one, and they agree with that one. And they copy each other, just like the prophets of Baal. God is looking for someone who's going to say what he said, even if they have to go to jail for it. And that prophet did. He was put in jail. And they said, feed him the bread and water of affliction. And he said, if you return from the battlefield alive, God has not spoken through me. And he didn't return alive. So these are the prophets. Jeremiah told the people to repent, to turn back to God. Isaiah told the people to turn back to God. And on and on you read through the minor prophets uh, as well as the major prophets. And you see what the message of God is. The prophets are not uh, uniquely telling things that are going to happen way off in the future. Prophecy means to speak for God, to be his messenger. And, and that included the, what we call the prophetic element, foretelling things. But much of prophecy is not foretelling the future as much as it is forthtelling, telling forth what God has said. And God had a lot to say through the prophets about the current conditions of his people. So prophetic ministry points out where God's people have gone wrong and how they need to straighten that out. It includes exhortation. And you see that in the book of Luke where we were when you come down to the end of the section that talks about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, it says in verse 18, And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. With many other words did he exhort the people. 
Because that's what prophetic ministry is. And he told the people to repent. Repentance is more than an attitude. People say, well, uh, it just means to rethink. And so as long as I rethink things and agree intellectually, then I've repented. Well, then why did John say, bring forth fruits befitting repentance? Listen, in that sense, repentance is a cause and the fruits of repentance are the effect in that sense. So you cannot rethink things and come to agree with God without changing your behavior. The only proof that you really have done what you said you did is when the fruit is there. And that's why he said, bring forth. He said, I want to see it. He wasn't going to baptize anybody that he couldn't see it in. And come back with me to Matthew chapter 3 and you'll see why. Because it says here in Matthew chapter 3, in verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about the Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Now that word for confess there is not the normal word we use when we talk about, like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's not that word. It's a different word, which means to confess out loud, in a loud voice. It means almost like wailing. These people were coming to John, and he'd be standing, let's say, there up there on the bank of the river, and he's down here in the river. They'd come down here to him in the river, and he'd take hold of them. But before they went under the water, what? They said out loud, and everybody around them heard what their sins were. Messiah is coming. Make ready the way of the Lord. And if you are a repentant person, you've repented of your sins, you come down here and confess your sins, and and I'll baptize you, and you'll be part of the repentant remnant of Israel who's waiting for Messiah to come. And before he let them come down there in the water with him, they had to say why they needed the baptism of repentance. They were confessing their sins. And here come these snakes in their religious robes. And they want to slip in there and just be baptized. And maybe they say, oh, well, when I was little, I uh, stuck my tongue out at my mother once. Or if I did something wrong the last year, I can't remember what it was. But I'm sure nobody's perfect. He wasn't going to let them come in like that. Well, we all have faults and failings. Well, no one's perfect. Not going to get in that way. Fruits of repentance. Because the message is repentance. And without any fruit, there was no reason why John should believe it. You hear what I'm saying? Without any fruit, there's no reason why we should believe it. So, well, we can't look on people's heart. That's right, but we can look at the fruit. John couldn't see their heart, and that's why he said, bring me the fruit. No fruit, no baptism. Repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. Straighten out your life. That's what he's saying. Clean up your act, we say. And when you repent, what do you do? You jettison things. You turn them away. Look at Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7. Just to show you out of the Old Testament. And they knew this, that it was more than just uh, saying you were sorry or admitting you'd done something wrong. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Isaiah was preaching that message. He preached repentance. And John the Baptist is preaching it too because this is what repentance is to forsake your way, not just to change your mind, uh, 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 not just to change your mind, not just to rethink things, but as a result of that, to forsake your way, give it up. What does it say in Proverbs 28, 13? He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will have mercy. That's repentance. Forsake your way and your deeds and your thoughts, it says. We even have to repent of things that we thought that nobody else saw or heard. That will keep you busy. It does me. I still remember one time when the 
this old version of the Dick Van Dyke show where they had this thing where some of you don't even remember that, but some of you do. And uh, he worked with his buddies, too. I can't remember. One of them's name was Buddy and the girl. I can't remember her name. And all, who, Sally, that's it. And uh, the boss would come in and they would insult him. So they made up this little, they got this little coffee can. They made a rule that every time you insult the boss, you have to put in a, I don't know what it was, a nickel or a dime or something like that. And so he came in, and, the, and uh, Buddy says, well, how much would it cost me to call him a blubber-nosed baboon or something like that? She said, oh, about 125 And so he put the money in. And <laughs> Anyway, then the boss came over, and he just stood there and stared at him for a minute. He goes, plink, 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 and puts the money in. And he says, that's for what I was thinking. <laughs> I never forgot that, because that's a good illustration. That's for what I was thinking. To repent of what you were thinking. To realize that God knows what we think. God called, used John to call the people to repentance. But that isn't the only thing John said. He said for them to repent. And he warned them if they didn't what was going to happen. The axe is laid to the root of the tree. To every tree that does not bring forth good fruit. He warned them. You repent or you get the axe. He said. It will be... Cut down and cast into the fire. You repent or you get the fire. And so the people said, what to do? What should we do? Well, it wasn't the only thing John said. John also spoke of redemption. We don't have it here in this passage, but we have it in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John stood there in public and he looked at the Lord Jesus and he pointed to him and he said, the Lamb of God. Look, he said, God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jew there knew what that meant. Since the days of Exodus, since the days of coming out of Egypt, and there in Exodus chapter uh, 12, from their own Pesach, they all knew what the Passover was. That night when every family took a lamb, and the lamb was killed, and the lamb was, the blood was taken and painted over the post of the house. And then the lamb was cooked and eaten. And they ate it with bitter herbs and they had their sandals on. And they, they were ready to go. They had, they were dressed as if they were ready to go out on the trip. And they were remembering that night they left Egypt. They were remembering when they were delivered. Ever since then. And even before then, but that's the place where as the nation of Israel, the the lamb began to be important to the nation. And on through history you go. And when you come to Isaiah chapter 53, he is taken as a lamb. You see him there. Messiah is presented in chapter 53 as a lamb taken to the slaughter as a sheep before her shears is dumb so he opened not his mouth. You come into the New Testament and there he is. There's the lamb. All those lambs that died never took away the sin of the people in the Old Testament. They covered the sin. They illustrated the point, the, the one who was to come who would take away the sin. But when the lamb finally came that could take away sin, that was John's great privilege. He was the one who pointed him out to the people. He was the one who said, this is Messiah. This is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what should the people have done right now? They should have said, Lamb of God, take away my sin. And what should you do and what should I do? As soon as we know who it is, we ought to say, Lamb of God, take away my sin. I can't believe for the world. I can't reform the world, but I can believe for me. And that's where it starts. And John had this privilege. He preached the message Of the Lamb of God. He preached the redemption that God's Lamb came into the world to take away sin. Because that's what redemption is. He buys us back. He takes away our sin. He buys us and he makes us his own. And John preached that to the people. They knew about that. Listening to them, he directed uh, their attention to Christ and not to himself. When they asked him about himself, he talked about Christ. And when they wanted to know who he was, he said he was a voice. That's why we call him the incredible shrinking prophet. Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. Are you that prophet? No, I am not. Are you um, 
you know, Elijah, and he, Elijah, and he finally he just said no. His last answer was no. And then they said, well, what do you have to say of yourself? He said, I'm the voice. He didn't even say I'm a person. I'm the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, one of the daughters of Aaron. He didn't begin to quote his genealogy. He said, I'm a voice. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, in the desert, because that's what Israel was, spiritually a desert. Make ready the way of the Lord. And that's the message. Repent and receive the Redeemer, the Lamb of God. You have to make it ready. Repentance and redemption and retribution. Because if you don't accept the Lamb of God, if you don't receive God's Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, then the sin, your sin, is not going to be taken away. It's not going to be gone. And so then, retribution. What is retribution? Retribution is not reformation. Retribution is not... um, uh, reinserting people into society. It doesn't have that as its objective. Retribution has as its objective the punishment of wrongdoing. That's what it's called. And God cannot be the friend of good. Make sure you get this straight now. Don't ever forget this. God cannot be the friend of good without being the enemy of evil. He cannot be it. He's the friend of good. He loves good and he hates evil. He cannot be a lover and a friend of good and not be a hater of evil. And that's exactly what he is. Retribution. And he gives us three figures that express that retribution. And the first one is the axe. He's going to cut the tree down. And he's not going to chop off the branches and cut it half off and leave the stump. He says, I'm going to the root. I'm going to the root. And he's talking about, he's warning the nation of Israel. He's warning them. If you, if you don't repent, and thank God there was a repentant remnant there. He said, we're going to lay the axe to the root. And this is the way prophetic ministry deals with things. It doesn't deal simply with the symptoms. We go to the root of the problem. And when we preach the gospel and we do personal work, you take the axe and you lay it to the root of the problem. Don't argue with people all the time about the symptoms, about behaviors. Go to the root of the problem. What causes all of this? It's right here. It's the heart. It's desperately wicked, deceitful and desperately wicked. This is the root of the problem. And God's axe goes right into the root Of the problem. Every tree that does not bring forth good fruit. God practices a non-discriminatory policy. Every tree that doesn't bring forth good fruit. Doesn't matter who you are. And who your daddy was. And how much you make. And where you live. And where you went to school. And what your job is. Nobody cares. In heaven. What matters is. If you believe God or not. And if you don't, every tree that brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So the first thing is the axe, and the second thing is the fire. The axe cuts off. The fire burns. Oh, but it can't mean literal fire. It's just a figurative thing. Mm -hmm. Why, Why can't it be? Well, because it would, if it were literal fire, it would burn them up and consume them. What about that fire in the bush, in the burning bush, in the book of Exodus when Moses stood there and saw that bush burning and the fires burning and the bushes not being consumed? What kind of fire was that? Was that a literal fire that he saw? Yes, it was. Was that a literal bush? Yes, it was. But the bush wasn't being burned up by the fire because there's a fire that God makes that burns and doesn't consume. And it just keeps burning and it just keeps burning and it just keeps burning. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. The fire. And finally, the winnowing floor. Verse 17. His fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. Now, I don't know if this makes sense to some of you. 
if you've ever seen where, where they do what we call winnowing grain, where they throw it up into the air. They would harvest it, of course, by hand then, and they would have it, the grain piled up in an area. They still do this in some areas of Spain. It's piled up on the floor, on the ground. The ground and floor is confusing in Spanish when I come back to English. And uh, they would take it and throw it up into the air in a place where there was a breeze. And if there wasn't any breeze, they had these men or people standing there with these huge fans. And they'd be moving it like this, creating the air current. And they'd throw the stuff up in the air with these shovels or these forks. They'd throw it up into the air. And as it fell, the grains of wheat, which weigh more, would fall straight to the ground. But the chaff, the husk and the chaff that's all around it, which doesn't weigh anything, the, the air currents would blow it away. And they just keep throwing it up, and this stuff will keep blowing away, and they keep throwing it up, and pretty soon all the chaff is gone, and what you got left is wheat. So they're separating the wheat from the chaff. So when he says his fan is in his hand, he's talking about the Lord. And he says he's going to thoroughly purge his floor, and his floor is Israel. He's going to purge it, he said. He's going to blow and throw all that stuff up in the air, and only the wheat is going to be left. And all the rest is going to be, the chaff is going to be burned with unquenchable fire. And if the Lord had to do that with the nation of Israel that professed to be his people in those days, what is he going to have to do with professing evangelicals? I tell you, the fan is coming. And people are going to be thrown up and down. And the fan is blowing the currents, the air currents are carrying away the chaff. And I wouldn't want to be carried away in that current. The cleansing of the house. The getting out of the midst of the people, all those who aren't really believers. Taking them away because the Lord is only going to take the wheat to heaven. <laughs> well, what did he say? Well, we read that last night. Neither shall enter into it anything that defiles. We read that, didn't we? Okay, let's change the illustration back to chaff. God's not going to have any chaff in heaven, only wheat. He's going to get all that chaff blown away first. So what about all the other people? Well, don't worry about them. This is all mixed up there in the wheat. All the people who know they're unbelievers and who reject God, they're all out there somewhere. They're the weeds. They're the trees. They're out in the countryside. They're not on the threshing floor. They're not there in that pile of wheat. But that pile of wheat's got to be separated because it's not all wheat that looks like wheat. And there wasn't all true believers in Israel. And they aren't all true believers in the evangelical churches today either. So he preached to them. Before the Lord appeared to the people, he preached to them repentance and redemption and retribution. It's like saying, repent and believe the gospel or else. That's what it's like saying. John didn't preach like a clown. He didn't have any puppets. He didn't do pantomime. He wasn't trying to entertain the people or attract attention. He just went out and preached what God told him. And you know what? God has given us a message, hasn't he? It's right here in his word. We don't have to. He's made it so simple for us. We don't have to invent anything. We don't have to go fabricate a message. He already told us what to say. All we have to do is know the message and go and give it to people. And not leave any part out. Don't just tell them that the Lamb of God died to take away their sins. Don't forget about the first part. Repent. And don't forget about the last part, the or else. Remember the gospel according to John the Baptist. Remember to give all the parts of the message of God. And may God help us to see people who are really saved, wheat and not chaff, brought into his threshing floor. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time that we can be together. And we thank you for the glimpses of the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you for his fearlessness, for the courage with which he preached, the conviction, and we just pray that you will help us to be like him, so certain of what God has said that we are absolutely fearless in proclaiming it. And give us that holy concentration 
on your message, to not be distracted on the other messages and, and other subjects. Help us, Lord, to be able to bring the message of repentance and redemption and retribution. And we do pray that you would save souls. And we thank you for saving us. We thank you that when we look at those words about retribution, we can say, by the grace of God, I'll never know that fire, that unquenchable fire, because the Lord Jesus suffered for me. Thank you, Lord, for saving our souls. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you for new life in Christ. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. In his name, amen.